Legend, history, memory. Stories form the fabric of life itself. We pull threads to make sense of our perceptions. I'm Tristan Crocker. This is That's Telling. Episode 7, Thumbing a Ride. Certain images are synonymous with the hippie era. One of these is the kid who has left home, the wayward cherub who, after climbing out the bathroom window, stands by the side of the road, all long hair and a scowl, looking to catch a ride. My name is Linda Mahood. I'm in the history department. I've been here since 1995. Linda has written a book about hitchhiking the Trans-Canada Highway, entitled Thumbing a Ride. Technically, I'm a late baby boomer, which means I was born in 1960. So I was the recipient of a lot of the uh, cultural activities that took place um, throughout my childhood. Sort of the Vietnam War, rock and roll, LSD, bell bottoms, long hair. For me, I watched that. I was too little to be a part of it, but I watched it. One of the things she watched were hitchhikers. I would see hippie kids, teenagers, hitchhiking past my house. So I always knew growing up that it would be something I would do. But because I'm a late boomer, I knew it was something I probably shouldn't do, but I knew that it was something that I would definitely do. I started hitchhiking um, when I was in grade nine. A lot of the, a lot of us would hitchhike up and down Eighth Street because I grew up in Saskatoon. We'd hitchhike up and down Eighth Street and and um, see who would pick us up. It was fun. It was just a way of socializing with kids from other schools, and we'd get picked up when we drive around and have a lot of fun and make new friends that way. Um, it wasn't seen to be a particularly unusual thing to do uh, for kids in, in you know, small cities in Canada around that time. All of my friends were doing it. And then when I got older, um, I uh, hitchhiked around Vancouver. I had a friend in Vancouver and I'd hitchhiked, I'd go out and visit her and then we'd hitchhike to Banff. She'd always hitchhike me back to Banff after our visit and then I'd fly home. And then when I was um, even older than that, I was in my when I was, no, I was about 18, 19, I also hitchhiked around Quebec. I was doing I was doing this in the late 70s, early 80s, but the biggest wave of hitchhikers, the biggest mass hitchhiking movement was when I was only 10 when that happened. Uh, I was grade five, but in that, that summer of 1970, 1971, 1972, that was the biggest wave of hitchhikers. A couple of years earlier, the Trans-Canada Highway was being built with hopes of being finished for Expo 67. 
And so after that, then this highway was complete, and uh, and and the 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 hippie generation was in full fledged by that time. There had been seven brand new universities that opened up in Canada, and the student loan system was well in place and was re- doing a really good job then of subsidizing post secondary education. So for a lot, for the most part, it was really cheap. Um, but there were so many kids in university that the whole phenomenon of the summer job and the problem of having a summer job, which had never really existed before because there weren't that many students that needed a summer job, hit. And so there was so much summer unemployment that there really wasn't anything for students to do. And the Trans-Canada Highway was there. And um, the, the, at first it was almost like a fad, but it was also like an experience to hitchhike back and forth across Canada for the summer in theory, people were looking for jobs, but in reality, if you couldn't find a job, you may as well go off and have a really interesting experience. And hitchhiking across Canada for uh, that whole generation was considered to be an interesting experience. Linda interviewed about a hundred people, half men and half women, and asked them why they chose to hitchhike. People would do it uh, high school students did it for a summer holiday. Students did it um, as a break from university. Students did it who were frustrated with university. Young workers who weren't going to university uh, did it because they just wanted didn't want to end up like their dads working in factories and they wanted to see what the world was like before they settled down. So off they went and on the road everybody was the same. Nobody cared much whether you were a student or a worker or whatever they created a kind of a community and, and that depended on each other for different information and advice and then the next question i asked them was what they brought with them because i w- was interested i was interested in how they created this traveler identity so i would ask them what was what what did you bring with you and everybody talked about their backpack because it was certain sort of a code. It was a subculture, and everybody had to have a backpack. You wouldn't want a suit. You wouldn't hitchhike with a suitcase. Yeah. A suitcase was like those traveling salesmen look. They were against that. So they'd all have a backpack. I'd ask them what they put in it. People seem to remember exactly what they had in their backpacks. Um, most people who I talked to were either were sort of between the ages of about fourteen and twenty-four when they went. Some of them told their parents. Some of them asked their parents. Some of them just ran away in the middle of the night because they knew their parents would never agree. Some of them had parents who drove them to the highway. Uh, Some of them hopped on the bus and went out to the highway. Some of them lied and said they were taking the bus when they were really just hitchhiking. There was lots of negotiation with parents. Some parents thought it was the best thing their kid could be doing, getting out, taking some chances, getting some confidence, maybe having a bad experience that would make you grow up faster. One mother, she said she wasn't happy that her son was robbed at gunpoint, knife point, but she thought, well, you know, bad things happen in life, and at least he learns not to trust people. But again, a lot of parents thought it would be a great thing to do. Um, and again, others were brokenhearted. One woman, she was from a Jewish family, she said, broke everybody's heart, quitting, quitting school in my family. But off she went. People said, well, I brought all my, I packed all my hippie clothes, I packed all my gauze blouses, I just had jeans, brought rolling papers, I took some cans of, you know, tinned meat out of my mother's pantry, brought a hunting knife, bug repellent if they were going to be in northern Ontario. Some people had a ground sheet, some people had a small tent, some people just planned to sleep under the stars, they might have a small bedroll or a, uh, or a small sleeping bag, but in the early 1970s, camping equipment, the way we know it today, it didn't really exist, there wasn't a lot of stuff around. 
Uh, guitar case was handy. Uh, it seems like guitar players were sort of the aristocrats of the uh, hitchhiking community. If you were wanting to panhandle or you wanting to busk to make some money for food, then a guitar yeah. came in handy. Uh, you could also put some clothes in a guitar case. People would develop gimmicks to make themselves more interesting to drivers. One guy said he always wore a tie. He wore a, a tie. If he wanted to get picked up, he'd have his old jean jacket and a shirt, but he'd put on a tie. Um, somebody had a, pla a, a tweed jacket. He always wore that. Uh, girls could describe themselves vividly standing on the side of the road. Big flared jeans, uh, boots, little gauzy tops, big frizzy hair, floppy hats. Um, they wanted to, they would, in, in certain intersections in certain parts of the country at certain times of the summer, there could be two or three hundred hitchhikers lined up, lined up on the highway at various intersections. And so again, you wanted to stand out. Some hitchhikers made signs. Uh, one hitchhiker I talked to, he said they'd waited so long to get a ride. Then he made a sign that said, I just took a bath, just <laughs> as a way of catching the attention of drivers. Because the idea of a smelly, sweaty hitchhiker in an unair conditioned car because it's the 70s was an unappealing sight and these kids got really dirty really run down there were so many people on the roads hitchhiking in the early 70s pierre trudeau had 21 armories open to the public where hitchhikers could stay for free it was a federal program it was funded i think he gave them something like uh, two hundred sixty thousand dollars the first year for essentially free bed and breakfast for canadian youth uh, the following summer, uh, they added to that, in addition to setting up youth hostels in cities all across Canada, they also created what, was, what were hitchhiking kiosks, which were giant tents. These giant tents, I think there was uh, just, there was about 14 or 15 of them that were all over, the, all across the country on the Trans-Canada Highway, and the hitchhiker kiosk had a desk inside. It had some electricity, it had, it had had water for hitchhikers to drink, bathrooms for them to use. There was somebody with the, um, some local youth, a local, hip, a local hipster would be hired to sit there and give hitchhikers directions as to how to get into town, how to find the next youth hostel, how to connect with other people. There were lots of notices boards where people looking for other people. Because again, in a day before cell phones, when, um, when uh, and, and, and uh, long distance telephone calls were so, um, so expensive, uh, notice boards were the key way in which uh, travelers uh, created sort of a telegraph network for themselves. Why would the government do this? It, there was two reasons. First of all, I think it was part of the counterculture. It seemed like the right thing to do by a federal government that was really interested in engaging with young people. Trudeau mania had just started to wane. And again, the enthusiasm of young people got him elected, and he really wanted to keep tapped into the youth culture. So in that respect it was the right thing to do uh, but in a more cynical view is that cynically there weren't enough jobs for students and they were so worried about riots um, that was this summer earlier that spring there was the Kent State massacre mm. where the um, National Guard opened fire on protesting youth there had been occupations at the university in Winnipeg there was a race riot that started on uh, at, at uh, a university sorry in Montreal there'd been a race riot in Montreal there were students were occupying president's offices all over Canada demanding a better bigger say 
in the uh, in the uh, institutions that were governing their lives. The vote was still twenty one, and uh, and and that generation were insisting and demanding that their that their they have they have the opportunity to um, to have their say, their voice heard in the country, and so they were worried about riots, student unemployment, and uh, and. Uh, and, and this sort of the tension around uh, the counterculture put everybody on edge. And um, and so it just seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, federal uh, government officials actually said idle hands, right? When middle class young people have nothing to do, they riot. And that's what they were afraid of. Those singers like Bob Dylan and Ian Tyson and, you know, early, early Neil Young, they started taking that idea of being on the road and putting that into their music. And so they became role models for the young people. And by in the late 60s and early 70s, songs about hitchhiking were on the radio. People were seeing it. People got the idea that it would be part of an authentic experience to travel across the country, sleep in ditches, meet the people, see the country. Sometimes, depending on where you ended up, your sleeping arrangements for the night could become interesting. Many people I interviewed spent the night in jail, but not because they'd been arrested, but because they couldn't find a place to sleep. And so if you were really desperate, you'd go to the local police, you'd go to the local courthouse or the police station and say, I really need to, to sleep. And most cops in the early 70s would let kids sleep in the uh, jail. One guy's, one, some guy spent Christmas Eve in a jail in southern Ontario. They said they spent the night reading lipstick because women, it was a women's jail and women had been writing messages and lipstick. Oh, one of the women I interviewed, she was about four, 15, or, 15 or 16, and she and her friends decided three, two, two boys and, and her, her, her boyfriend and her friend four of them. They ran away in the middle of the night. She snuck down the stairs. They, they left Winnipeg. They, um, got as far as Saskatchewan. They were picked up in a little Volkswagen Beetle. They were smashed all in there and the car was speeding. And the police pulled over, pulled, pulled the, um, pulled the, the driver of the Volkswagen Beetle over and, uh, the kids all had to get out. So they all poured out. The four of them had managed to fit in the back of this car. And the, uh, cop was just about to ask them for their ID when he got a call on his radio and had to speed off and left them all there. So then they got away with that. So then they continued going on and they got all the way up to uh, Prince Rupert, I think. And then things weren't working out with the boyfriend and she decided she wanted to go home. And so she was really upset. So she went storming off and she was hitchhiking up the road and she got picked up by a trucker who told her that she... um, and he hadn't seen a woman for three weeks, and she was at her wits' end. She just burst into tears and made her take her make it made him take her to the nearest police station. So she went in there. In the meantime, the pol- her parents had reported her missing, so they put her in the jail there, yeah. and uh, they put her in the jail. But they left the door open and bought her sandwiches and fashion magazines, <laughs> and waited until her parents came to get her. The generation who thought of it was that hitchhiking across the country might be fun. Uh, they grow up. And again, people said, well, you did it once or twice, but by the third time, it was tiring, it was exhausting, it was cold, it was miserable. Hitchhiking is boring. And and people started to have more and more bad experiences or to talk about bad experiences more. 
They would chalk them up to experience, but sometimes it meant they stopped hitchhiking after that. Um, many, um, many of the men I, I interviewed had a certain kind of range of negative experiences with male drivers. There were drivers that had those were fetishes and they wanted to talk about they wanted to talk about penis size or they wanted to talk about the women they slept with or they wanted to have conversations that they were uncomfortable with uh, somebody I, I I interviewed he said he was picked up by somebody who said he worked for the highways and he was just going to be checking surveying posts and so every so often he said I'm going to have to lean over and look over and he realized after he did it about four times that the man was sniffing him and he said that when he wasn't, he wasn't, he used the word pervert a lot because he was just a sniffer and he felt sorry for him. I'd met a man who was raped and sometimes after those things happened to young men, they just stopped hitchhiking and again, they'd get their own cars eventually and maybe not even analyze it too much. Problems with women in hitchhiking, they were much more frequently talked about. Uh, by the mid early 1970s, women in hitchhiking are held up as one of the worst things that young women can do. And the stereotypes about women hitchhiking meant that they were, came across that they were asking for it. The women who hitchhikes a ride is asking for it, that she deserves what happens to her. That was the rhetoric that the courts, the police, society was starting to think. Um, and so it made it difficult for women to complain when bad things happened when they hitchhiked too because people would say, well, it was your own fault. But again, same kind of things. Uh, they would get picked up by, by men who assumed that they wanted to either see their naked body parts or be touched. There was sexual assault. Um, a woman that I interviewed, uh, she finished a waitress job and she was she was on a mountain ski resort and she was just hitchhiking back to staff housing as she had done it was everybody did and she said she got picked up by somebody and um he uh she was it was in a truck and he um leaned over he said do you want a cigarette and she said no i don't smoke but he just leaned over to grab a cigarette out of the glove compartment which was in front of where she was sitting and um she he fumbled around and she looked out the window and then she looked down again and he had a great big knife and he was pressing it against her neck and she panicked and a lot of people said the same thing they'd say I panicked and then I remembered something I learned in my sociology class I learned something from psychology I thought we're supposed to humanize myself I'm supposed to talk about talk about who I am so they'd all start kind of babbling but this guy just said look I'm, I'm serious I don't want, I, I'm sorry I'm gonna have to do this to you and she thought okay I've got one chance here I'm gonna open the door jump out of this car or I'm gonna die in this truck and she uh, opened the door and jumped out and then she stood up in the middle of the interview and she pulled up both legs of her jeans and showed me the scars on the front of her legs she broke both of her legs and she was um, air flown to uh, air vapped, I think to uh, Victoria but she said that if she had been raped or she had been murdered she believed that the police would have paid more attention to it because neither of those things had happened there was really they didn't make any effort to find the person um, two of the women I interviewed, they had friends that were murdered and the bodies have never been found. Um, one of them, it was just an evening. She was she would just hitchhike, was going to hitchhike over to her boyfriend's house. She told her mom she was doing it. Her parents always let her hitchhike. They just didn't like to let her hitchhike at night. This is 1972, and her body's never been found. 
Um, and another case, she there was a her this woman, her friend was, uh, she was in Calgary for the summer and she was hitchhiking back. She was going to start college, and she was never her. She was they've never found who murdered her. So yeah, and so what happens then by the mid nineteen seventies is. Anytime um, rape statistics or sexual assault statistics are collected, they would look at the location and suddenly hitchhiking is added as the locus. And suddenly the police start collecting data on hitchhiking related crimes. And before that, it had just been robberies, but then they started adding sexual assault to it. So in terms of trying to to, uh, clean up the streets, um, they hitchhiking just becomes associated with uh, horrible things that can happen to young people. But it's sexual violence against youth in everyday society. It, it, it exists today. It's always existed. It's just how, how you look at where it happened. People would say they, it was like a balance of probabilities. They played the odds. I had a hundred of good rides and only one bad one. Usually the people who picked up Hitchhikers, they want the company. I mean, for someone to pick up a hitchhiker, they will have an ulterior motive. They will need, they will need, they have a need. The picker-uppers have a need. And so do the hitchhikers. They have a need. And so they come together in the car. It could be quite a magical thing. A really interesting young person and a, and a, and a, and a, and a parent who is worried about their own kids. You know, you could get this really nice experience and have a really good ride. Uh, frequently, the drivers would stop and buy the hitchhikers some lunch. Sometimes businessmen might get a hotel room on their um, expense account and put, you know, a, a hitchhikers up in their own room. Hitchhiking is a ritual right? Like any other ritual, when it works, there's solidarity, there's understanding, people come together. If we shake hands, we have an agreement, right? If I renege on the agreement, it's the handshake that didn't work, right? It's about sharing, it's about democracy, it's about freedom. Hitchhiking, sharing like that's a beautiful thing. It's an act of charity. Uh, one of the urban legends of hitchhiking was the Wawa hitchhiker. And there were so many hitchhikers, so many kids stuck around Wawa that the rumors were that it was taking months to get out. So the urban legend of the Wawa hitchhiker was the guy who was stranded so long that he married the local waitress that he met the week before. And that story of the Wawa hitchhiker, it's heard everywhere in the early 1970s. If you go to Wawa today, there'll still be people who'll be talking about the hitchhikers. By the late 70s, interest in hitchhiking began to wane. Some people would say it was a fad. Hitchhiking across the country and back was a fad. The economy improved. There were better summer job programs in place for students. There was a chance to make money in the summer. Tuition became more and more expensive, and so students had to make money in the summer. When I, I joined Katimavec after high school, it was a government-sponsored youth project, and it was implemented in 1976. Um, it had been designed under Trudeau, and it only had three rules. No sex, no drugs, no hitchhiking. And so I have my diary from men, and we're living in, uh, we're living in uh, uh, Bay St. Paul in Quebec. We're staying at the youth hostel there, and uh, my diary, it says, I, I broke the hitchhiking rule today. <laughs> so, uh, I, after after work, we hitchhiked to Saint Irene, and then we came back, and we sat we sat on a hill and philosophized for a while. 
That's Telling is written and created by Tristan Crocker. That's me. All of the music heard throughout the show is by Paul Crocker. Thank you to my guest, University of Guelph professor Linda Mahood. If you live in or around the Guelph, Ontario area, That's Telling can be heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. on CFRU 93.3 FM or stream live at CFRU.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>